I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara Life. Today, I'm sitting down with one of the most respected clinicians and educators in the field of functional medicine, Chris Kresser. He is the founder of Kresser Institute and a New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine. Chris received his master's in acupuncture and oriental medicine from UC Berkeley and has a wealth of knowledge. We are so excited to have him on today to discuss the primary dietary factors that are impacting our health and contributing to our country's chronic disease epidemic. Please welcome Chris Kresser. Chris, I'm so happy to have you on the Sakara Life podcast. It's been, what, like maybe seven years since I think so. we've connected? Yeah, time mm. is, is flying. Well, we like to start off the, the podcast asking about your mission. So what is your mission here on earth? What is the, the gift you're giving us? My mission is to help people thrive. So it's pretty simple. And this can include preventing and reversing disease, but also improving our quality of life and well-being. And one of the definitions of health that has most resonated with me over the years this come from Moshe Feldenkrais, who is the founder of the Feldenkrais Method. And he said, true health is the ability to live your dreams. So that's really how I Amen. think about it. Amen. I love that because I think in this new world age of wellness, I feel often as though for a lot of people, it's just become another checklist, yes. like another thing to do instead of the thing that empowers you to go out and do all the things you want to do. Absolutely. And and that's, for me, that's been a, an evolution over time of coming to understand that. And you know, my own struggle with chronic illness and I work with people who have pretty intense chronic illnesses and what I've discovered on my own path and then working with thousands of people in this situation is that we tend to think that being healthy means never having any symptoms or, you know, any challenges, mm -hmm. but I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's possible to still be dealing with a chronic health condition and live a really rich, rewarding, meaningful life mm -hmm. where you're contributing and making a difference and just loving your life. And it's also possible to be symptom-free and be miserable and what I would call unhealthy. So that's why I've kind of narrowed down that mission to helping people thrive because for me, that really just encapsulates what, what I'm here for. Yeah. I love that because I think, yeah, we just, we tend, it's a very inclusive approach to what health and vitality means. And it's also subjective to the person experiencing it instead of having this kind of blanket approach to what health yes. means, like based on your biomarkers or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Well, so tell me about, you know, how you, so we met several years ago at the Mind Body Green, what was it called? For, Rejuvenate Re something. Rejuvenate, yeah. Was it Arizona. rejuvenate? It was it something was like that that lets me feeling rejuvenated. Um, yes. It was, yeah, it was a beautiful conference and I got to meet you there and one, just like immediately loved your energy and like you have a really beautiful kind of like peaceful aura about you, but mm, also you. your the depth of which you seek to understand the human body and and how it really can function at its peak. Tell me, like, how did you get into this work? Like, what brought you to this mission? 
I was brought to it. I think it's a good way of, of saying it. I was not one of those kids who grew up saying you wanted to be a doctor. It wasn't, wasn't even really on my short list. And in my early 20s, I was working in the film and television industry. And it took me about a year to figure out that, that if I continued in that way, I was going to die <laughs> of a heart attack or something like that. So I sold everything I owned. I took off to travel around the world. And my plan was to just kind of surf my way around the world for a couple of years. And I was about a year into that trip and I was in Indonesia. I was in a little tiny island called Sumbawa, which is a couple islands east of Bali. And I got extremely sick with a, a tropical illness. I got it when I was living in this small village and the water the surf break, not the water I was drinking, but surf break actually became contaminated with, or, or there was contaminated water that went into the river mouth. And very long story short, I was near death for a period of time and gradually started to find my way back to health. And along the way, became very interested in, for very direct personal reasons, in all different aspects of health and well-being. And at some point in that journey, decided that there was a calling that was taking place. And, and I decided to go back to school and kind of formalize my education and training. I started a website, which at that time was just kind of for my own tracking of my own research. And I was really surprised when somebody left a comment on one of my blog posts. This was like back in 2007 or eight. And one thing led to another and I started a functional medicine practice and then started a training program for functional medicine practitioners and a health coach program and wrote a few books and here I am. <laughs> and what, if, if you don't mind me asking, what exactly were you dealing with it? Was it a parasite? Was it something like that? And what were some of your early approaches to get yourself back to health? Uh, it was it was multiple parasite infections. It was actually wow. an amoeba, amoebic dysentery, e-histolytica, and then two parasites, giardia and blastocystis hominis. But I didn't actually figure that out for at least. I was going to ask, how did you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it took at least I think a year to eighteen months to really figure that out. I, I went to London School of Tropical Disease. I went back to Australia from Indonesia to get medical help there because they were familiar with those pathogens and it was really, really difficult to get a diagnosis initially. And then once I had the diagnosis, that was just the start, the starting point. Then it was a question of how to get rid of those pathogens and, and then deal with the after effects after those pathogens were gone from all the treatment that I had to do to get rid of them. So my experience during that time was really like leave no stone unturned and I was exploring uh, Western allopathic methods. You know, I did take antibiotics and antiparasitic drugs. I did Chinese herbs. I did Ayurvedic herbs. I saw shamans. I did homeopathy. I tried a macrobiotic vegan diet and even almost became a macrobiotic vegan chef. I tried a raw <laughs> food diet. I discovered what at the time, paleo, this term paleo was not really used that much, but I, it was a kind of more ancestral type of diet like that. I tried everything. I, I had no kind of beliefs other than I'm going to see what works and, mm -hmm. and I'm going to try to focus on things that are going to make me help me heal and recover and try to stay away from things that might harm me further. <laughs> that was, that was sort of my guidelines. And over time, I, I would say the things that made the biggest difference for me was a nutrient dense whole foods diet. And we can talk more about that, but also herbs. And I think antibiotics were helpful and necessary given the extent of the infections that I had, but then really focusing a lot on the emotional and psycho-spiritual aspects of disease. And I went and lived at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur for two and a half years and to explore all of that. And I really feel like that was essential to my mm. recovery and, and healing. And just as important as the diet, nutrition, and herbs and supplements. Mm. It doesn't tend to, 
you know, I talk about it on podcasts and as much as I can, but it doesn't tend to get included in my story as, as much as the other parts do. It's funny, you know, at Sakara, we talk about it too, that food can often be the foundation and a catalyst toward a spiritual, emotional transformation. And oftentimes I think it is easier for people to start with food because yeah. it's more actionable and more concrete where the spiritual emotional can often feel obtuse. I also think the spiritual emotional work can be that much more daunting and harder, you know, get a face, face your demon, so to speak. Can you, I wasn't necessarily thinking about this topic, but I'm not sure this topic gets discussed enough. And that is amoebas and parasites like do you get a lot of patients that are dealing with that and and you're kind of like their last stop because conventional medicine doesn't typically think to look for that unless you've been in tropical location and are these types of issues only in tropical locations or do you see them in anywhere on the globe yeah great questions Amoebas are less common in the developed world. I've seen them and it happens for sure, but they tend to be more prevalent in the developing world. Parasites are very common in the developed world. And that is a surprise often to people when I, you know, we do stool testing on all patients pretty much that come into the clinic and we will very often find parasites and people sometimes are shocked because they're like, wait, I haven't been to Mexico or Indonesia or any place like that. Blastocystis hominis, for example, one of the two parasites that I had is the most common parasite infection in the world now, I think, at this wow. point. And, and is that coming from water only? It can come from food too? It comes from what's called, this is a little gross, but the fecal-oral route, which means that generally feces of some type of organism that's carrying that parasite contaminates a water source or a food source, or, and then humans consume that water or food. So an example, there was an outbreak in the Bay Area a few years ago of cryptosporidium, which is similar in that regard. And it came from basil from Guatemala. And that basil came from a field that was irrigated with water that had been contaminated by feces, which contained this parasite. And now we have this global food system, right? So that basil from Guatemala ended up in a bunch of different Vietnamese restaurants in the Bay Area. And then a whole bunch of people who ate in those Vietnamese restaurants became sick with that parasite. So this is just part of this global world global food supply that we live with now. And yeah, I think a lot of people do have gut infections that are not aware of it because in the conventional medical model, they're rarely tested for unless somebody has really acute symptoms. Somebody has like really severe diarrhea. They just got back from Mexico. They might get tested for that in the conventional model. But if someone just has like IBS type of symptoms, almost they're rarely going to get tested for that by their primary care doctor. And I do want to be careful because I think we got in so much trouble around the germ theory and thinking that bacteria and even viruses were bad for us. And then we started, you know, bombing our systems with antibiotics <laughs> and God bless antibiotics um, when you need them. But we at the time did not understand the impact it had on our microbiome and the impact our microbiome had on our overall health. So can parasites be kind of a healthy part of the microbiota and like the microbiome ecosystem? And then the second question to that is like, are they always hard to get rid of or not? Yeah, this is a rich topic and there's so much nuance. So I'll, I'll try to break it down as simply as I can. We know for a fact that there are certain parasites that human beings have harbored for as long as we've been human and, and even before that as well. You know, they've been part of mammalian evolution for 300 million years. And there's even evidence that our immune system in part evolved in response to these parasites. Now, these are tend to be more in the worm family, like hookworm, for example, pinworms, whipworms, and things like this. But there's also some evidence that we have a kind of symbiotic relationship with even more recent pathogens like the bacteria Helicobacter pylori or H. pylori, which we now know causes ulcers. And 
at the same time, there are definitely parasites that are pathogens and they don't, as far as we know, confer any benefit to the human host and just cause problems. So if you imagine like two ends of the spectrum, there's ones that are really clearly pathogenic and problematic, and there's ones that are actually quite clearly beneficial as long as they're not overrepresented. But then there's a whole bunch of gray area in the middle. And that I think is where most of us live because if you have a pathogen that might not be problematic for someone, if they're in overall good health and they have strong gut health and everything is going pretty well, if you put that pathogen in the gut of someone who has a whole bunch of gut issues and their immune system is low, then it could be a problem. So I think when I've worked with patients, it's really just case by case basis and kind of evaluating based on my clinical experience and the research, whether whatever we find in the gut is problematic and needs to be treated or not. And then in terms of treatment, yes, a lot of these organisms are very difficult to eradicate. Again, I had personal experience of this, but also working with many patients and they can often recur because what can happen is if you use antimicrobials, whether they're herbs or drugs, you suppress the level of that pathogen. And then over time, if there's still some left over time, that can grow back or resurge. And so sometimes it just becomes a situation where people are, uh, it's a management ecosystem management project, if you will. <laughs> like you don't expect to get every single weed out of your garden and you don't need to, right. To have a healthy garden. And sometimes the, the lengths you have to go to to get every single weed out of your garden will kill everything else in the garden. <laughs> so right. it's actually a pretty good analogy for sometimes how we look at gut healing and gut treatment. Yeah. Did you just come up with that or is that a metaphor you use often? I've used it before because <laughs> okay, it's it, really good. <laughs> it helps patients to understand. And it makes yeah. me think also about the, the cornerstone foundational element of overall gut health. And you talked about it earlier and the, the more compromised your gut is, the more likely you are to experience very adverse effects from something like a parasite on the end of the spectrum where it might not hurt someone that has a healthy gut or might not damage their gut as, as much. So it makes me wonder, what would you say are the three to five biggest culprits getting in the way of gut health for most people right now? Well, um, one is excessive antibiotic use for sure. There's so many studies now that have shown that to be the case. And I want to be clear that I'm not suggesting that people never take antibiotics. Antibiotics can be life-saving and necessary. I've experienced that myself, and there are definitely times when we need to take them. But at the same time, we also know from abundant research that they're overprescribed, and they're also often used for things that conditions that would not even benefit from antibiotics. For example, in childhood infections, many of them, like 60 to 75% of ear infections or upper respiratory infections are viral. And antibiotics don't do any, they kill bacteria, they don't kill viruses. And so taking antibiotics in that situation is not indicated, and yet it, it very often happens. So I think that's one uh, big factor. And there are also other medications that disrupt the gut flora, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen. A lot of women don't know this, but oral contraceptives actually disrupt the gut microbiome, can have a pretty big impact. So I would just if we put medications in, in one big category, that's that's number one. Number two is is diet. Now, 60% of the calories that Americans eat now come from not just processed foods, but ultra-processed foods. So these are things like pizza, white bread, white flour, sugar, industrial seed oil, sugar-sweetened beverages, cookies, crackers, cakes, all the stuff you see when you go into a grocery store or a liquor store or whatever that is on the shelves in bags and boxes. And now that's 60% of the calories that Americans eat. And those foods um, basically feed pathogenic, harmful bacteria in the gut, and they, they mess up the gut ecosystem that we were just talking about. So they, they contribute to a very unhealthy garden. Um, 
Number three would be stress. This is actually a lesser known um, factor that, that disrupts the gut, uh, but the gut essentially is part of our nervous system. Um, some, some scientists refer to it as the second brain and there's more serotonin. There's about 500 times more serotonin in the gut than there is in the brain, 400 times more melatonin. Um, and it's just, you know, a big bundle of nerves essentially. So if we have chronic stress in our lives, that's going to have an impact on the gut and the gut microbiome. Uh, number four would be sleep. Very similar mechanisms. If we don't sleep, we don't get into that parasympathetic rest and digest response, is, you know, which is the opposite of the fight or flight response. And that impacts the gut flora. And the fifth, I would say, uh, activity and exercise. We know that with not enough activity, um, the, the, the gut, the enteric nervous system suffers and, and our gut flora suffers as, as a result. So the modern lifestyle in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say like all of us are, you know, eating processed foods, stuck at our desk, stressed out, overworking. First thing we said not on the call is enough. not yeah. sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Taking I a love... lot of medications because of all those things. Right. Right. And it's like yeah. this self-perpetuating issue. Today, I am very excited to tell you about our latest product launch, our Super Bar Collection. We recently updated our cult favorites, Detox, Beauty, and Energy Super Bars that you all know and love to ensure that we're continuing to deliver on our commitment to providing you with the best tasting and most nutritious products on the market. These are the perfect on-the-go snack and ensure you don't have to sacrifice quality for convenience. All of these newly formulated bars focus on stabilizing your blood sugar, which as you know, because you listen to the Sakara Life podcast, is at the core of metabolic health. We have increased the protein in each bar, so it now contains 12 grams. Each bar has 40% of your fiber, which is really important for your microbiome. The sugar is, has been cut in half, also a part of stabilizing your blood sugar. We have new functional ingredients, things like sea buckthorn oil that have omega-7. They're all USDA certified, no added chemicals, toxins, etc. as always. So our collection has energy. Energy bar is really delicious. It's kind of like this Mexican hot cocoa. It's like chocolate, but it has cinnamon. It contains adaptogenic mushrooms to increase energy and lower cortisol. Our Beauty bars probably have the biggest change. They went from like a strawberry kind of burst to now these ones are lemon, citrus, and poppy seed. They are so juicy and delicious. Contain sea buckthorn oil, as I was talking about earlier, enhances collagen production and hydrates the skin. And our detox bar, which if I'm allowed to have a favorite, I'd say is my favorite. It has blue spirulina that supports the detox pathways in the body and has sesame seeds, which not only add a really delicious texture to the bar, um, which is blue by the way, but also contains added calcium and vitamin E, etc. So check out the new super bars. And when you get to the website and you check out, type in podcast 15 for 15% off your purchase. There's so much to dig in there, but I'd like to focus on a few things. One is you mentioned industrial seed oils, which we talk a lot about here at Sakara. And I have to admit, I'm a, I'm personally a freak about them in, in my household and, and in Sakara food as well. So can you explain what they are and why they're so inflammatory and wreak havoc on our, our health and microbiome specifically? Yeah, definitely. And I, I'm pretty freakish about it too, to the point where, you know, we're having our first in-person event this fall in Utah in the mountains. And I'm working with the the venue to replace all seed oils that they would typically use in cooking with uh, avocado oil and coconut oil and other oils. That, that's how, you know, that's how focused on this I am. So, and yeah, partly because I you. know... 
the research and I, and I know how harmful these can be. And I just, I feel like crap when I eat these kinds of oils. So anyhow, and they're in everything. That's why I, people think I'm crazy. And I'm like, I try not to go out to eat. Like I intentionally try and it's not because I'm crazy. It's because if you eat outside of your home or outside of something that you trust, like Saqqara, then you are eating seed oils. Like there's oh, yeah. no, there's no, no doubt. No, no doubt. doubt. Even yeah. like a nice restaurant. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm heartened that some restaurants seem to be getting more aware of this and they're starting to use like ghee or coconut oil sometimes or olive oil, but we got a long ways to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I sure. honestly can't name one in New York city. So yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Seed oils. Well, so these, these, the reason they're called industrial seed oils, let's just break that down for, for a moment. They originally were byproducts of industrial processes. So they started being used in soap making by Procter & Gamble way, this is like in the early 1900s, and they were low cost and they were products of, of industrial processes. And my understanding is that companies used to have to pay for them to be disposed of as, as part of their industry, but then they figured out a way to sell them as healthful diet products. So they're made from seeds. So you've got cotton seed and sunflower and safflower are some pretty popular ones. Then you've got, of course, soybean oil, corn oil, and these oils really kind of, I think, ramped up in their prevalence in the food supply starting in the 1950s and 60s when saturated fat started to become demonized because of its theoretical impact on raising cholesterol in the blood. And so you saw a shift away from natural unprocessed fats like butter or lard or tallow, which were what were typically used in the American diet prior to seed oils. And then other oils like olive oil or avocado oil were not really prevalent then either. And so there was this shift to these industrial seed oils because they were high in polyunsaturated fat. And that was seen as a, as a positive thing at that time because they would not increase cholesterol levels. Now, what was not understood then, but is increasingly understood now, is that polyunsaturated fats are highly unstable. Uh, so this means they're sub subject to oxidative damage when they're exposed to light and heat. And most of these, most oils, if you, you know, heat, it's cooking is heat, right? And light, it's, they're bound to be exposed to light. So in a typical diet, if these are used as cooking oils or, or even oils that are included in foods that are processed and then packaged, you're going to have oxidized fats. And now we have a huge body of evidence showing that consuming these oxidized fats or consuming too much of these polyunsaturated fats that can then become oxidized in our body leads to all kinds of health issues. They've been linked to greater inflammation and inflammation is the root of basically all chronic disease. So we've seen links to asthma, autoimmune disease, mental health issues, diabetes, heart disease, infertility, and more. Cancer. And yeah, cancer. And as you said, Danielle, these oils are ubiquitous now. If you go into any grocery store and you look at any packaged food, I can guarantee you that one of the first ingredients is going to be safflower oil, sunflower oil, soybean oil, cottonseed oil, etc., any foods in restaurants that are cooked are going to be cooked in these oils because they're so cheap and it's really hard to avoid them unless you're paying a lot of attention, you know, paying really close attention. Yeah. And you can basically think of oxidized fat as rancid, right? Exactly. Like, yep. That's how I usually get people. <laughs> that's a Every better, time. <laughs> it's a visceral word, right? Yeah. And like, you're literally eating, uh, rancid oils and everything yeah. and and you yeah, can smell make... that typically yes right and like if you smell fried seed oil it smells rancid yeah my husband is really anti sitting next to you know during covid we had to sit outside a lot and there was this there's this restaurant on the corner that we love that we would kind of just more get, get lattes and things like that. But they had like the exhaust that was like right by <laughs> yeah. where you sit outside and he was like, you know, you're basically inhaling 
that rancid oil, which, you know, I don't know which is worse, eating it or, or inhaling it. Um, right. And you it talked about this. It smells like a, a biodiesel car or something, you know? It does. <laughs> and you by. can just, it smells rancid. You're totally yeah. right. Like that. Yeah. And you touched on this briefly, but could you, do you, could you delve a little deeper into exactly what they do in the process of creating these oils? Like I know they use things like chemical solvents and colorants, et cetera. Like, it's not like it's just the oil. It's like how we got there is oh, also yeah. so toxic. Yeah, they're, they're, they're among the most highly processed and refined foods in the food supply. You know, if you think about what has to happen to get from a cotton seed or a sunflower to a liquid oil like that, they, like you said, they're, they're processed at extremely high temperatures with chemicals and solvents. And all of that is just getting further and further and further away from being a real food. And all of that, I think, in the food supply is so problematic because we, we live in a world already where we're exposed to so many different toxins in air, water, and in our environment that we have varying levels of control over. And I feel like this is one area where we actually do have some control. We can take action and control our exposure to these foods. And at first it might seem like a pain, but I th once you get used to it and once you become familiar with how to make those substitutions and then find good alternatives, I think it's often one of the single biggest differences that people experience when they switch to a healthy whole foods diet is just eliminating those oils. And in fact, historically, if I haven't been able to get someone to do the full extent of the diet that I recommend, I say, okay, just start with three things. Take out flour, sugar, and seed oil. If you only do those three things, you're, you're going to improve dramatically. And then you can go, the, and then once you're feeling better, you can go the rest of the way from there. I love that. And I, I think to the the fat point, it's like a lot of these industrial seed oils and things like Crisco and things like that, like gave fat a bad rap. And, you know, we thought were the things that were causing things like cholesterol, et cetera, but it's actually a much more complicated system. It's not like eating cholesterol equals higher cholesterol necessarily. High cholesterol is often linked to blood sugar as well as inflammation, et cetera. So you're a fan of, you're like, you're pro-fat Am I right? And and if so, which fats? You talked about a couple, but yeah. which fats are your favorites? I'm pro real food, healthy fats for sure. Um, because I think if you look at what we can eat, right? We've got carbohydrates, we've got fat, and we've got protein. Those essentially all food that we consume breaks down into those three different macronutrients. And each of those um, categories has an important role to play. Fat is the is a source of energy and it's a source of kind of long burning energy. And it, and it also plays a number of roles in terms of cells and cell membranes and brain health, et cetera. And most people, when they eat too, a diet that's too low in fat, they don't feel good. And they don't function well and their cells don't function as well. Their brain doesn't function as well. So I, I've always been a fan of an individualized approach to diet. I've, I've always said there's no one size fits all approach. And so the exact amount of fat that one person should consume is probably not the same as the, the next person. You know, it will depend on their activity level, their genes, their epigenetics, their lifestyle, et cetera. But yeah, most people I think need to be eating a good amount of healthy fat. And let's start with the monounsaturated fats. So these are like avocado oil, olive oil, a lot of nuts, tree nuts, macadamia, pecan, hazelnut, et cetera. The oils from these nuts are monounsaturated. If you were to take a category of food and say, what is the least controversial category of food in terms from people who are like vegan, vegetarian, paleo, keto, whatever, any Mediterranean monounsaturated fats, I think would be the one that almost everybody would agree is healthy, right? From any yep. kind of diet approach. And so those are amazing fats. They're fantastic. They're really good for us. Another benefit is they tend to have a pretty high smoke point, which means that you can cook with them at medium temperatures and they're not going to oxidize and cause some of those problems that we were just talking about. So they're good cooking fats in general. 
avocado oil in particular has a, a very high smoke point. But I'm also a fan of traditional fats. I mentioned ghee, I think butter, coconut oil. These are saturated fats, but for many people, they're able to eat a modest amount of saturated fat and not have any downside in terms of their lipid numbers. And, and actually, they feel great. It's good for their skin, their brain. The myelin sheaths and neurons in the brain, saturated fat and cholesterol can be beneficial for, for those. And then the last category is polyunsaturated fats. So we talked about those in a bad way with industrial seed oils, omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. But there are, of course, omega-3 polyunsaturated fats that you get from uh, seafood or shellfish or algae for if you don't consume seafood or shellfish. And those, particularly the long-chain omega-3 fats like EPA and DHA you, you find in seafood or algae are, are highly beneficial for heart health and brain health, but we don't need a, a lot of those. And those are best consumed just in, in the context of a whole foods diet, like if you do eat seafood or shellfish or, or if not, you know, taking an algae supplement or something like that is a reasonable alternative. And when you speak to something like avocado oil and coconut oil, do you recommend people look for cold pressed versions of these oils to make sure they're not, you know, heated at high temps, et cetera? I do. Yeah. yeah. The cold pressed extra virgin. I generally recommend the least processed version of, yeah. of these foods that you can find. The exception would be if you're cooking an expeller pressed coconut oil, for example, might be, it will have a higher smoke point. So if you're wanting to do like a stir fry where you're using higher temperatures, I think an expeller pressed coconut oil might be a good choice in that situation or avocado oil because of the higher smoke point than like an extra virgin coconut oil, which would have a lower smoke point and which I would use in cases where I'm not cooking at higher temperatures. I could talk about fats for a long time. It's, it's so funny. It's like, I've had to convince myself that I'm, you know, <laughs> and my husband that I'm not crazy and making sure I avoid them at all costs. And I think about it in particular to my children, because I work very hard to try and not let them have snacks, but we're in such a snack culture. And I certainly don't want to make them <laughs> feel like they can't participate sometimes. And so you know, it's what you said, like you, I want to control what I can control. And there is not a kid snack out there that does not contain, even the good ones that are, you know, organic and add broccoli powder and like sound so good contain a safflower or sunflower oil. So yeah, it's, it's really hard to avoid and you have to be, to be super diligent. Unfortunately, it's like on every, yeah. every shelf on the grocery store. It's hard for sure. I mean, there, there's, I'm seeing some change, like some of the seaweed snacks now have avocado or olive oil rather than sunflower yeah. or safflower oil. And there's, yep. you know, there are a few, uh, chips type of things now that, that are, are trying and popcorn. Yeah. There's some popcorn yeah. that's like with ghee now. Yeah. It's a no, little better. It's a little it's better. It is getting better. But then on yeah. the flip side, you know, the, the kind of big, Food Corp is also catching on to trends. And so, you know, right. I've seen things like avocado oil on the shelf, but then you read it and it's mostly safflower oil with avocado oil added. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, not to freak anyone, you know, listening out, but it's just like you do in this day and age, you have to be such an educated consumer and it's yep. like whack-a-mole basically trying to <laughs> yeah. make sure you, you source the highest quality stuff. It's a, that's a really important conversation though. Yeah. And I'm sure you, I know you talk about it a lot with your people, but like, just be, yeah, like knowing how to read a food label and yeah. it is so important. And, and generally the fewer ingredients, the better, and you should be able to pronounce everything on the label and know exactly what it is. If you stick with that, you're going to do pretty well in general. Exactly. But one thing I didn't hear you talk about in your list of microbiome disruptors was things like toxins, chemicals, herbicides, pesticides, et cetera. Is that something that you believe is a microbiome disruptor? And how do you help your patients avoid some of the most common pitfalls like glyphosate, et cetera? Yeah, definitely. It's hard. It's really hard, this one, because 
even when we're doing the right things, we can still be exposed to this stuff. And that's depressing, frankly, you know, people trying so hard and making the right decisions. Glyphosate being a prime example. There's so many studies now that show that it's ubiquitous in the environment and it's spread into even organic foods because it's not like they're just firm boundaries out there in right. the world where there's and like it's a in the wall water. between, yeah, it's yeah. in the water. Yeah. Yeah, they've done studies of infants and shown that it's in the cord blood of, you know, 97% of infants. And there's still some question about what levels of exposure are harmful, but I think the precautionary principle applies here is again, like we want to do everything we can within our control to lower our exposure to these toxins without locking ourselves in a room and making <laughs> making our life miserable. We still have to live life, but there are so many things we can do. So heavy metals are you know, making sure you have a clean source of drinking water and you aren't getting exposed to heavy metals through your water. Um, do you use a filter? Yeah, we do. We have the clearly filtered filter, mm, which I like okay. a lot. There, there are a lot of good ones out there now. We actually have a whole house filter as well as a drinking water filter. You meaning whole house, like so for your shower, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. And what do you recommend to people when they're looking at filters? Like, cause there's so many different types. Like, what do you think they should look for? Yeah, that we might need to have another <laughs> podcast on Part that two. one. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> uh, I mean, and there's a lot of people have different preferences too. Like yeah. reverse osmosis is a very good filtration technology, but I think that water tastes terrible unless right. you add minerals, add minerals back to yeah. it. So mm-hmm. I like clearly filtered because it tastes good to me. It tastes really good. I think you can, we can really often trust our taste when it comes to these kinds of things. Berkey filters are really good too, but they don't have under the sink filters. They just have a typically thing, a, a big filter that you stick on top of your sink and you always have to remember to fill it up and it takes a long time to filter. Right. But anyhow... So water, clean source of water, clean air. It's amazing Sorry, can to I ask me. you one more thing about water? Yeah, please, Since you ahead. talked about mm-hmm. parasites, just does something like a good filtration system help get rid of parasites as well? It can. It depends on the filtration system, though. I mean, I'm sure anyone who has experience like camping in the backcountry or hiking in the backcountry knows about water filters that can get rid of parasites. And you can also put you know, iodine drops and things like that. And in water, they can take care of parasites. But generally, if you're filtering, that usually happens pretty well at the, at the municipal level. So if you're, if you live in New York city or any city, you're generally filtering water that has already used technology that has killed parasites. And so you don't typically have to worry about that unless you like live in a rural area and you don't think the city's doing a good job or you're, you're on a, you have your own well, or you're, you have your own water supply, then you have to think about parasites. But I think most people living in, in urban or suburban areas don't have to worry about that. Interesting. Okay, go on, because I could stay on All water right. forever. <laughs> so yeah, heavy metals through water, but also dental amalgams is another like common source of mercury, for example, arsenic in, in rice, too much brown rice, for example, and particularly brown rice from India and, and parts of the developing world that don't have as strict controls around that can be a source of arsenic. And then you mentioned glyphosate. So eating organic is a big step in the right direction there, but there there's still potential for glyphosate exposure, BPA and other estrogenic type of compounds in plastics. So like using stainless steel water bottles instead of plastic and trying not to eat food out of plastic, especially food that's been heated as much as possible. So I'm sure you've talked about a lot of these things with your audience and, you know, they're all just small steps, but when you add them all together, you can really dramatically reduce personal care products, skin products. You can dramatically reduce your exposure to toxins that way. Yeah. And we tend to get people that are like my, I never really had to think about this, like, is this new? And especially like the older generation, like my mom thinks I'm completely nuts. Um, (laughs) And I try and remind her that it's a different world, that we are exposed to many, many, many more toxins than we've ever been exposed to. So I I don't have the choice, but to be 
more aware and strict about the things I can control. And then on the other side, which we are going to need another one, because I also wanted to ask you about nutritional deficiencies. It's like in a world where our food is so much less nutritious because of over farming on our, our soil and not letting land lie and using synthetic fertilizers, et cetera. Our food just doesn't contain the same amount of vitamins and minerals that it once did. And so something like supplementation or, you know, eating more or eating organic or eating from regenerative farms becomes so, so important. Critical. Yeah. That, yeah let's I, do another show on that alone because okay. that's, you, as you know, that's been like my, the drama I've, I've been beating for since I wrote my first book, which is almost 10 years ago now. And I think nutrient density is probably the single most important factor when it comes to diet and how people mm -hmm. feel on a day-to-day basis. And as you pointed out, the sad thing is that even those of us who are making better choices now are making better choices in terms of food, the nutrient density of food has just declined. It's yeah. somewhat precipitously since like the, the 1900s, I've seen statistics on levels of magnesium, vitamin C, B vitamins, et cetera, in foods have just dropped like a rock because of changes in soil quality and, and all food comes from soil. So if soil health is declining, then our nutrient quality in food Planning. We could definitely talk about that all day yeah. long. Do you grow your any of your own food? It's harder to do in, in where I live now in, in Park City. We've got like a three, four month growing season, but we do. My wife is a real green thumb. And so she does grow. We do grow our own food at that time of year. And when we lived in the Bay Area, we had a thriving garden and we had fruit trees and, mm. you know, big vegetable garden and lots of uh, nine chickens and wow. lots, lots of, lots of stuff going on, like kind of little urban farm. Yeah. And I what mean, do you I, think would be the biggest change if tomorrow nothing else changed except seed oils left the diet? What would be like the biggest impact we'd oh, see? Oh, just over like the on a personal months? level. I mean, I can just say, like, my wife, for example, she, if we do go out to a restaurant uh, and she feels bad afterwards, it's always the oils. That's, yeah. that's what it is for And she can tell it's like, she's so sensitive to it. She can just tell, Oh, that was cooked in rancid oil. <laughs> you know, I know yeah. she has a very characteristic response. And I think so many people are just experiencing this every day, but they don't yeah. eat, they're not even aware of it. Right. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. If you've foods. never felt good, you don't know what you're missing. It, exactly. So I think yeah. just like on a very direct personal level, people would just feel a lot better, <laughs> but then yeah. I think you'd start to see a decline in inflammatory diseases across the board that we talked about earlier, cardiometabolic diseases, autoimmune disease, cancer, asthma, you know, atopic diseases, et cetera. What about obesity? Yeah. I mean, I, obesity is a complex condition and I think certainly consumption of all kinds of pro highly processed and refined foods, including seed oils has contributed yeah. to that. Yeah. I think fat and obesity in particular is often blamed on things like calories when it's such a very complicated <laughs> metabolic system that can sometimes really be anchored in inflammation, which you said at the very beginning of the podcast, like inflammation is at the core of so many of the things we're facing. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I, um, I'm doing my master's right now in functional medicine and human nutrition. Oh, and great. Good for you. I think I found it. I think I found the program originally on your website. Yeah, I was reading have. like one of your blogs and I think like someone that had written it or something like went there and I was like, oh, I've been looking yeah. for it. That was like many years ago. But yeah. anyway, yeah, cool. I'm really enjoying it. That's fantastic. So what is the light work slash homework to shine our brightest lights? What are, what are you going to give us? Okay. I'm going to give you an assignment to do at least one thing each day for the next week to actively cultivate pleasure and joy mm. in your life. And I love that so much, Chris. I think this is, again, something that gets left out too often of the conversation around health. And some people think I'm crazy when I say that. They're like, oh, look around. The whole culture is dedicated to Pleasure. I don't think that's true at all. I think the culture is dedicated to distraction. 
And that is a very different experience than real pleasure. So some examples might be taking a hot bath, getting a massage, going outside with your shoes off and walking on the ground, playing with your kids, playing without your phone, <laughs> not getting distracted with your phone, playing with a pet, having sex, giving your partner a massage, getting a massage, doing something that will release those endorphins and actually put you in a state of pure pleasure is so important to our humanity. And I think we're just getting further and further away from that in the modern world that we live in. And I think it's so, so important. So I would suggest everyone make a list of like 10 or 12 things that they know bring them pleasure and keep that list around because in the course of a regular week, you'll forget. And then just schedule time in your calendar, actually schedule time, like any other appointment, half hour, and then commit to doing one of those things on your list each day for seven days. And I guarantee you, you will feel like a different person at the end of the week. It's beautiful. We often say that joy is a nutrient and we don't have to get into it now, but earlier you said there's like basically three things, protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And I'd argue that there's many other nutrients that go beyond, you know, from polyphenols and antioxidants to things like joy, as you said, that are so undervalued as, as a form of nourishment. So I love that light work. Thank you. You're welcome. And Thanks so much for joining today. I'm so happy I got to talk to you and, and see you again. And let's definitely schedule number two and cover nutrient deficiencies. I think that'll be great. To. Thanks for having me on, Danielle. It's great to connect with you again. Thanks. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experience through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program, head to sakara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world.